0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke to Philip Goff. Dr. Philip Goff is a philosopher who teaches at Durham University and who I briefly knew when I spoke English as a foreign language years ago in Oxford Street. Would you believe that? He is author of Consciousness and Fundamental Reality and then another book called And Galileo's Era. Or is that all one book? That's what I'm struggling to understand. I think that's two books. I think he pointed that out in the show. And as usual, Jenny and yes... Jenny's research, uh, no one else's, <laughs> has shown huge problems and flaws. Jenny, what do you say? You're going to upset Charlie. Why? She listens back. Huh? She listens back. <laughs> of course she does. Charlie, you're doing great work and we all appreciate you. Jenny, on the other hand, what terrible work you're doing. And do we appreciate you, even today of all days, oh, no. your birthday, your 30th birthday? 30 years of Irish femininity and for what, Jen, (laughs) for what? Uh, Happy birthday to you. Uh, He has written and appeared in many newspapers, magazines, Guardian, Times, Literary Supplement, Philosophy Now. And I'm talking to him about panpsychism, the idea that consciousness may be a fundamental, inherent component of reality as opposed to an incidental or occurred component. I don't know if he explains it in the podcast better. You'll listen to him. So do you remember when I done a podcast with Eckhart Tolle the other day? Of course you do. Here's some of your comments. Good, wasn't it? Good two hours. Cheyenne White Dove goes, I've been waiting for this moment all my life, but that is true, Cheyenne, of all moments. Santi himself, it's calming just to hear what Eckhart has to say, and what he says is very true. Amazing guest, Russell. I agree with that. Just listening to him, it's like he's broadcasting the thing that he's talking about, sort of peace, and bringing you into the present. I tell you this, I love Eckhart Tolle. (laughs) There. I love him. I've said it. Jessica says, I've been waiting for this for years. The two spiritual leaders, yep, two spiritually. Yes, Jen, don't shake your head. Two, one being Eckhart Tolle. She doesn't literally say this, but what's implied is me, Russell Brand. old Russ, from Big Brothers Big Mouth, <laughs> from forgetting Sarah Marshall, from other things, Ponderland, going to the Greek, all those things. Spicable me too, one and two is a spiritual leader now and we're all gonna just have to settle down and accept it on our comfy little cushions in our new emergent commune that's right because if you subscribe to the mailing list you <laughs> might have been one of the hundred people that was on my zoom call the other day and i really really felt as pleased as punch when i was doing it i really thought yes yes you'll be running an online church soon my man and then a real physical church that's right jen it's a coming Holidays are coming, holidays are coming, (laughs) revolution coming, revolution coming. And this panpsychism could be an important piece of the jigsaw. Anyway, let's get back to Jesse uh, Jesse Kitch's letter, electro letter, post. Uh, The two spiritual leaders... Again, just to stress, that's me and Eckhart Tolle, who have taught me the most and stirred the most reflection. It's good because he talks about narcissists, doesn't he? And so stirring a reflection is an interesting image to have deployed. And growth within me sitting down together. The fact is it happened during the current events. Oh, the current events. And to be able to hear him speak about them is so next level. Hands going like, yay. Like those appreciative palm open hands, then prayer hands. My... My As a white person, I've not deliberately changed those pair hands to white. I'd like them yellow, like, you know, the sort of emoji yellow. They seem to be white now. Yeah. Maybe I'll change them back to yellow.
1: Why? Because <laughs> of the Simpsons. Seems too deliberate. Yeah, I'd rather be a Simpsons.
0: <laughs> I'm a Simpsons. Personal promo. This is some promo that. Jen, what are you looking at me like that for? <laughs> How's your week been, Jen? Great. What do you do?
1: Edited some videos of you. Good, were they? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't squint
0: when you say, yeah. You moving house?
1: Yes. Mm.
0: Mm. Going to get in a relationship? With who? If you're interested... Why did your eyebrows do that? (laughs) I wonder who it would be. If you're interested in a relationship with (laughs) Jen, are you looking for a relationship? Not actively. What types of human being do you like? Thin. Thin. It doesn't matter the gender or sex of the person. No. Doesn't matter. If you're a nice thin person, give Jen. A chiseled. Chiseled. She's miming a chiseled jaw. So, right. If you're listening to this, look down at your jaw. Run your hand along it. Is it chiseled? If not, don't bother. But if it is, you might. And you're a single person. Do you want to be with a single person, Jen, or do you not mind being with someone who's in another relationship? Not anymore. Okay, so if you're if no one else will be hurt by it and you've got a nice chiseled jaw you, what are you on in Insta, Go, Jenny May Finn Jenny Mae Finn no. <laughs> so there oh, you God. go Jen, you can edit it yourself you can take that out you can leave it in the fact is you've got the ultimate power in this situation because you want the credit even if I seem like a powerful patriarch in this situation being dominant towards a female a strong female in the workplace on her 30th birthday the reality is is if this is left in Jenny left it in. She had that editorial I power. Cut that bit out, yeah, cut that bit out. That was, oh, <laughs> now the mind games begin. It's your online Stalinist domain. Uh, yeah, subscribe to my YouTube channel to get some videos if you want, and follow me on all of those various, you know, social media sites if you want. The real thing you want to do is sign up to the mailing list because I do these online shows now call it an online church where you can uh, like sort of there's basically a Zoom meeting and like it's me talking but I'll answer your questions you'll have real direct uh, you know and also I I respond to those emails I can't promise that I'll respond to them all but I do promise you that I'll read every single last one of them guys hello at ru- help at com. is it that we send it to is it not hello it's one of those you can work it out look at my website alright then well Let's get on with Philip Goff and understand the true nature of panpsychism once and for all. It's getting on my nerves that I've not understood it already. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not oh, a successful yeah. route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Philip, thank you for coming on Under the Skin to talk to us about panpsychism, the nature of consciousness. You've written extensively on this subject. Uh, I've already mentioned your book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality and Galileo's Error. And I'm very grateful that you've come on to explain to us these deep mysteries.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's what I like talking about, sitting talking about consciousness. My favorite thing to do.
0: It's one of mine as well. As a matter of fact, you, you're, um, you're, you teach at Durham University.
1: Yeah, just been here a couple of years now. Ta- taught at a lot of different places since I finished my PhD, but think I'm settled here and now. Durham, going to put down some roots. And yeah, it's a good place to be.
0: Can you explain to us basically what you what is generally meant by panpsychism and what? and if you if your theories are an evolution or amendment of that commonly understood definition
1: yeah so i guess in our common way of thinking about things consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and you know so exists only in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history cosmically speaking at least but according to panpsychism consciousness pervades the universe and and is a fundamental feature of it. Um, It it doesn't literally mean that everything is conscious, uh, despite the sort of etymology of the word. Uh, The basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps electrons and quarks, have unimaginably simple forms of experience and that the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from the experience of its, of its most basic parts. So that's the kind of idea, It sounds kind of wacky, but um, I guess it all starts with, with the problem of consciousness, this deep difficulty of how to fit consciousness into our scientific story of the universe. And I've come to find that, that the conventional options just have such deep difficulties, and panpsychism, wacky as it sounds, avoids those difficulties. I'm just gonna shut this window, actually, there's some kids playing uh, outside.
0: I, I'd imagine what they are are people that deeply disagree with your theories. That's what it
1: is. Toddlers on bikes. It's always toddlers on bikes disagree with
0: me. Nonsense. Consciousness must have come from matter at some point. They shout as they pass the window.
1: <laughs> Consciousness,
0: like so that we can even put that much used word into some kind of context. It's just like experience. The experience of eating a strawberry. That, like, what is this awareness? Who, Who is it that's experiencing it? what is it to know what it is to be alive? Is that a sort of a simple? Easy yeah, sort it?
1: of. I mean, it's it's good to start off with that because it, it is actually a bit of an ambiguous word. Often people use it to mean, the word consciousness to mean something quite sophisticated, like self-consciousness, awareness of one's own existence. So that's something you might be reluctant to ascribe to many non-human animals. You know, it's not clear a sheep is aware of its own existence. But re- all we mean by consciousness in these contexts is just, as you say, subjective experience pleasure pain visual or auditory experiences so you know right now you're having an auditory experience of my voice talking to you a visual experience of the room around you if you pay attention you know there's tactile experiences of your body touching the chair Um, this is all part of what it's like to be you all aspects of your consciousness so consciousness is just what it's like to be you Yes, and this is you know, quite widespread in the animal kingdom. Even if a sheep's not aware of its existence, it, it certainly has some kind of experience. If you stick a, If you're cruel enough to stick a knife in a sheep, it's going to feel pain. So that's all we mean by consciousness.
0: I don't know why, Philip, but that was the automatic example that you gave, an unprovoked knife attack, sorry, on a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it'd be it's, difficult it's to think vivid... what could provoke one, other than eating them, <laughs> which is pretty standard behaviour.
1: Yeah, I guess it's these vivid examples of you know seeing red, feeling pain, and and actually there are much more nuanced forms of consciousness, self reflective consciousness. But I guess it's good to start with those vivid examples to really home in on what we're talking about.
0: Right. Yeah. Like I've sort of in some of the stuff that I've read about consciousness, awareness, you know, famous. Essays like what it's like to be a bat or whatever. It seems like they're even very simple or David Foster Wallace on writing about lobsters. Like it's from an animal rights perspective, it's clear that the lobster... Isn't into being boiled, you know, yeah. in that pot, yeah. you know. So it's sort of okay. They're having some kind of experience in there So it, when we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about awareness, we're talking about experience, and we, it's like a, a relationship with that, with that experience, sort of preferences and stuff like that. Now, mate, you mentioned in passing the idea that conventional theories of um the uh, of evolution can't tackle what's uh, commonly known as the hard problem of consciousness. Can you uh, explain that to us a little bit as well?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, when I was taught undergraduate philosophy, we were taught that the the only two options were, on the one hand, dualism, the idea that consciousness is non-physical, outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. And on the other hand, materialism, you know, roughly that you can explain consciousness in in terms of the the, the chemistry of the brain or something like that. Uh, And I just think, you know, both of these face such deep difficulties. So... Um, well, starting with materialism, perhaps, you know, the more conventional, I guess dualism is the most popular option historically, maybe materialism is the most popular option among contemporary philosophers and scientists. Um, So, you know, there's a big issue, but I think that the core of the difficulty is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative quality involving phenomenon, just in a sense, you know, that it involves qualities. You think about the, the redness of a red experience, the smell of coffee, the taste of mint. You can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're essentially just gonna leave out these qualities and hence really leave out consciousness itself. Uh, so that's really the core of the problem. And, you know, I mean, what I've tried to press in my work is that actually we shouldn't be surprised at this because our conventional scientific approach from the Galileo onwards was specifically designed to exclude consciousness. Uh, this was, you know, Galileo is quite explicit about this. Um,
0: what can you explain that as well? Because like your book is called um, like Galileo's Error. Um, what, what, what do you mean that it was, yeah. that scientific thinking is specifically designed to exclude consciousness?
1: Yeah. So, do you want the long version of the short version?
0: We can handle the long version. We can handle
1: the long version. Okay, so... Probably not the full PhD version. No, 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 it no. still be fairly short. So, yeah, I think in a way Galileo is responsible for us even having a problem of consciousness. I'm sort of tracing this problem back to the philosophical foundations of the scientific revolution. So, you know, a key moment in the scientific revolution is when Galileo declares that mathematics is to be the language of the new science, right? The new science is to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. This is revolutionary. This much discussed moment, what is less discussed is the philosophical work Galileo had to do to get to this position. And that's because before Galileo, people thought, following Aristotle, people thought the world was filled with qualities, right? So there are colors on the surfaces of objects, smells floating through the air, Uh, tastes actually inside food, and you know Galileo was worried about this because he thought well you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of mathematics, you can't capture in an equation the the redness of red or the spiciness of paprika. So he got round this by proposing a radically new philosophical theory of reality. So we think of him as a great experimental scientist, which he was, but he was also a great philosopher. So he proposed this new theory and according to this new theory, the qualities are not really out there in the physical world. They're in the consciousness of the observer. So if you've got someone looking at a tomato, the redness isn't really out there on the surface of the tomato. It's in the consciousness of the person observing the tomato. Or if you're eating paprika, the spiciness isn't really in the pap- inside the paprika. It's in the consciousness of the person eating it. Or the classic philosophical example, if you've got a tree crashing down in a forest, there's no one there to hear it, no observer, no consciousness, no sound. So Galileo strips the physical world of its qualities. And after he's done that, all that remains are the purely quantitative features of matter, size, shape, location, motion, things you can capture in mathematical geometry. So in Galileo's worldview, there's this radical division in nature. It's a radical sort of dualism between two domains. The quantitative domain of science the physical world and its mathematical properties, and the qualitative domain of consciousness, consciousness with its colors and sounds and smells and tastes. So this is the start of mathematical physics, which has gone incredibly well. What we've forgotten, I think we're so blown away by how well it's gone, we've forgotten that it was never intended as a complete account of reality. The whole project was premised on putting consciousness outside of the domain of science. So just to finish off very briefly, so why is this so important? Because So, it's generally accepted now, it wasn't always, generally accepted there is this big scientific problem of consciousness. But one very common reaction is to say, come on, we just need to, you know, do a bit more neuroscience, a bit more cognitive science, we'll crack it. And I think people think this is because they look at the great success of physical science and explaining more and more of our universe and they think this gives us confidence that it's one day going to explain consciousness. But I think that's rooted in a misunderstanding of the history of science. Yes, physical science has done incredibly well, but it's done well because it was designed to exclude consciousness. You know, if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this hard problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with the quantitative, not the qualitative. So, you know... We've inherited this worldview where there are these two domains, the quantitative scientific domain and the qualitative domain of consciousness. If we now want to bring science consciousness into science, we need to find a way of bringing them back together. And I think that's really what panpsychism does. Sorry, that was a bit long.
0: No, no, it was beautiful. Um, it's interesting that Galileo is also this kind of enlightenment idol who, and sort of oddly martyr who is... I sometimes used cited as a kind of fuel for this is why we require the scientific perspective to be the dominant one because otherwise dogma and orthodoxy will sacrifice and compromise truth in order to maintain power but as seems to be the case in in uh, in uh, other instances of power like uh, commercial or economic power uh, there's been this odd replication of the dog doc- doctrinaire uh, attitudes that preceded it and so it's fascinating for me to learn that Galileo intended to extract consciousness or the subjective experience of things from this uh, quantitative and mathematics-based Uh, milieu or discipline or philosophy how that and so so panpsychism though you say which is is it a kind of a like a sort of spiritual hippie type theory panpsychism is it sort of pagan if like to believe that everything is imbued with consciousness that beingness itself is a type of consciousness
1: Yeah, so just just following on from what you said about Galileo, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, although it's a provocative title in a way, you know, I'm a huge fan of Galileo, and I think he understood consciousness much better than we do now in many respects. And probably it was necessary to put consciousness out of the domain of science for a time so we could focus on what we can capture in mathematics. I just think we're currently going through a phase of history, what will be looked at as a phase of history where people were so blown away by the success of physical science and the incredible technology it's produced that they became clients. They, that's everything. You know, that's the complete story. When the irony is it's gone so well precisely because Galileo designed it on a quite narrow focused task, one that wasn't designed to deal with the qualitative reality of consciousness. Um, is that
0: something in your book, your Galileo book, that you actually isolate and say, look, here he is saying that. Absolutely. Here he is saying, we'll put a, on...
1: really, it's ex- really explicit. He's very explicit. So he he says things like you know he criticizes people for trying to get to the essential nature of things, and this will come in with when we talk about panpsychism. He said, look, you can't deal with you can't do that deal with that with mathematics and observation. You know, it's basically saying let's just focus on what we can deal with. And Galileo, he didn't so he didn't quite talk believe in the soul in the kind of sense of something completely separate from the body like Rene Descartes believed in. He believed there was. A kind of incorporeal animation of the body. So it wasn't matter Ooh. as studied by physical science, and it's there that colors and sounds and smells appear in the incorporeal animation of the body, and that was just separate from physical science. So yeah, so I think in, in many ways, we, you know, we've forgotten that there, there is a philosophy behind our scientific approach. You know, so broadly speaking, there's, you know, there's two, two approaches to consciousness. One is to say, just carry on with our standard scientific approach and we'll crack it. Another approach is to say, no, it's so magical and mysterious, we'll, you know, we'll never crack it. I, you know, My approach is a sort of middle way. I think we can have confidence that we'll have a science, scientific a science of consciousness, but we need to rethink what science is, because our conventional scientific approach was not designed to deal with consciousness. In fact, it was explicitly designed to exclude it. Yeah. It seems to me that
0: as we have progressed along this pathway, experiencing along the way much much success in the areas you have outlined—technology, medicine, or manner of evident material advance—it has been accompanied by a kind of banalization of the human experience, a uh, enhancement of the significance of the role of the individual the philosophical and kind of emotional significance of material rather than it just its pragmatic value that like ie materialism as a philosophy as opposed to materialism as just the study of material and the acceptance of material and do you think then that the to to uh, refer to a question that we were touched upon but didn't fully explore that panpsychisms are uh, Kind of spiritual allusions and connections are significant because it seems to me that this this the pathway that you've just explained and described to us has occluded spirituality and has made, in some senses, our culture a lot poorer as a result.
1: I think this isn't just an abstract puzzle. Uh, it is an abstract puzzle, but it's it's not just that. I mean, I think this matters because. Consciousness is at the root of human identity, you know, fundamentally, we relate to each other as beings with feelings and experiences. And, you know, consciousness is arguably at the root of everything that's of value in human existence. And yet I believe our our official scientific worldview does not have a place for consciousness. And I think this can lead to a profound sense of alienation. You know, I think we, we know we have feelings and experiences and yet our official world scientific worldview tells us there's just kind of electrochemical signaling going on in our heads and I think many people sort of feel intuitively that's not the same thing and I think there's philosophical support for that viewpoint so I think you know this is part of you know what Max Weber 19th century sociologist called the you know the disenchantment of nature this this sense that we don't fit into the universe and you know I I always want to emphasize especially when we're talking about panpsychism and you know maybe we'll come back to the sort of cultural connotations of that that you refer to. You know, we shouldn't, when we're doing science or philosophy, we should be fundamentally thinking about not what view we'd like to be true, but what view is most likely to be true. I think there's a really powerful case for panpsychism as the best account of how consciousness fits into our scientific story. But I also think it offers picture of the universe it's maybe slightly more consonant with our sort of mental and spiritual well-being perhaps can lead to a better relationship with the environment and you know it's it's a view in which we're conscious creatures in a conscious universe we sort of fit in a little bit more uh that's not a reason to think it's true but it's you know it's an it's an implication worth exploring
0: although sometimes i feel like the the very fact that an ideology might be utilitarian is in itself a, a kind is a good argument this uh, so panpsychism is the argument that the, the phenomena of consciousness is inherent and fundamental to the universe it's not evolved from matter it's there as just the constant like, and you said at sort of the sort of at the more woo woo end, it's like everything's conscious from the pebble in your hand to the feather on the breeze type stuff, like maybe the lyrics of a song from Pocahontas. Nice. And then, at, uh, thanks. And at the, at the other end, it's simply saying consciousness is not a result of uh, evolving biology but was ever present. And in fact, you're sort of saying perhaps essential,
1: yeah. So, I mean. In terms of evolution, what, for according to Pan, Panpsychists, what, what evolution by natural selection did is take incredibly simple forms of experience and mould them into more, over millions of years, you know, more complicated forms of experience. So, you know, we're not saying an electron sort of is sitting there feeling existential angst. You know, we're saying it's got an almost unimaginably simple form of experience, and over millions of years of natural selection, you get more complicated forms of experience. So, you know, pretty soon after Darwin, actually, there were panpsychists like William James seeing how well this fitted with an evolutionary account. So, you know, I guess if you're, a, if you're not a panpsychist, you've got to think, you know, s- some point on the story of matter getting more complicated in evolution, you know, consciousness appears, some miracle happens. Whereas for the panpsychist, you know, it's always there. It's just molded into more complicated forms. But I mean, so, I mean, the starting point is, I mean, I think, so if I could just give you a bit of background, I mean, the, the reason there's been a rediscovery of interest in this is really a rediscovery of really important work from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity after the First World War. And uh, so I'm inclined to think these guys did in the, in, in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's like a tragedy of history that it was forgotten about for so long. But it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophies, causing a lot of interest, a lot of publications. And, you know, part of the reason I wrote this this book, Galileo's Era, my other book is, an, you mentioned, as an academic book. This is a book aimed at a general audience. To try and get these ideas out to a general audience, because, you know, everything's so specialized these days. You know, You, you, you know, an idea can be causing interest in, a certain area of philosophy but no one else knows about it so it's it's this form of panpsychism that i could perhaps tell you about that from russell and eddington in the 1920s that really is is distinct from older forms of panpsychism and is, it really offers us a really exciting way forward on consciousness
0: yes please tell us
1: uh yeah so the, the starting point of russell and eddington is that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is Right, and that seems like a kind of bizarre claim at first. You know, you read a physics textbook, you seem to learn all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. But what Russell and Eddington realized is that for all its richness, physics is confined to telling us about the relationships between particles and fields, how they interact. Um, You know, physics is basically a mathematical tool to allow us to predict how, you know, say electrons and quarks are going to interact and that's all really useful information, It gives us incredible technology, but it leaves us completely in the dark about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of matter, you know, what an electron is in itself, independent of its interactions with other things. So I, this, that's kind of abstract, but I, I've got a kind of chess piece analogy to try and make this clear.
0: I liked, I, I dug that man because I, I felt like, yeah, I see. It's saying that physics is motion, it's velocity, it's the way these things are interacting. But you mentioned earlier, yeah, we'd like the isness yeah. of an electron. We don't like, we're not. You're not suggesting that it's like thinking yeah. and worried about whether the. Neutrons and protons like it, or yeah. whatever, yeah. Like, like I would, particularly as it's so far away, as it turns out. Why would it care? It's the equivalent of a kilometer away in a helium atom. There is an isness to it. I get this idea, you know, sometimes, Philip, when I'm thinking about this stuff, is that what we read and ascertain are like the breaching phenomena where it intersects with the capacities of our senses and our own rational intelligence but that what we experience even with something sub-particular is you know and this I wonder if this fits in with a panpsychic perspective is just the observable component of something much broader you know like what I am struck by and I know that you aren't banging a particularly spiritual drum with all this, is that a lot of these ideas that, you know, I think you're going to explain to us now in more detail, are found elsewhere in sort of Vedic literature and in Buddhist philosophy and even in sort of Christian and Sufi philosophy, the idea of, Oneness, inherentness, timelessness, spacelessness, non—the kingdom of heaven is within. You know, and even when we said about the uh, like the, the the experience of an, of awareness that an electron has might not be complex, I sometimes feel that the the awareness that a human being would experience wouldn't be complex if it wasn't continually disrupted by you know necessary and permutating sensory data and memory and complexes and neurosis. Awareness itself is simple you know an indefinable isness that i am aware that i'm hooked up to these sort of instruments so um yeah i just wanted to make that announcement
1: i mean in connection with that so just maybe two things in connection with that so i mean one, what, what what this gives us is you've got, this form of panpsychism is kind of radically non-dualistic right so it's not saying you know when people hear about panpsychism they they think there's you're saying that a particle has its physical properties like mass spin and charge, and also these consciousness properties. But, you know, the idea is is, is there's just the things physics tells us about, let's say particles for the sake of simplicity, nothing in a way, nothing supernatural, but it, but it, but the point is they can be described from two perspectives. So physical science describes them as it were from the outside in terms of their relationships, their interactions, but from the inside, in their intrinsic nature, particles are forms of consciousness, right? So there's not like two things, particles and consciousness. In a way, there's just forms of consciousness. Physical science tells us what they do. So it's it's, it's a radically simple, elegant way of integrating consciousness into our scientific story, seeing what science tells us and reality of consciousness as two sides of the same Coin, and so that's you know the beautiful elegance of it.
0: Where was that in Bertrand Russell and Eddington then?
1: You know, you think of you think of uh, Russell as um, this very kind of scientific, logical. You know, you, you hear about his pacifism as well, but you don't hear much about this stuff. But it's a book in 1927 called The Analysis of Matter, uh, and you know that that the foundations of this were built. Also closely connected to um, Whitehead, who, who was writing at the same time, who's influential and. Uh, And Eddington, in the following year, in his Gifford lectures, which eventually became a book called The Nature of the Physical Universe, built upon this and built a kind of panpsychist version of it. So, yeah, there was this wonderful flourishing time in the 1920s. And I sort of think you had the Great Depression and um, the the kind of anti-philosophy zeitgeist of the post-war years, where it was, you know, at some points even taboo to talk about consciousness. It wasn't seen as proper study for, you know, proper scientific study. So, you know, we've got a lot of baggage to get rid of. And I think we're coming back to this, this very interesting answer from the 1920s. Um, but just to, on, on the spirituality stuff. So, I mean, I'm always just two things on this. I'm always keen to emphasize that because of the cultural connotations, you know, panpsychism isn't essentially wrapped up with anything spiritual. So a lot of the people defending this now, David Chalmers, luke roloff's are complete secular atheists you know they don't believe in anything any transcendent spirituality they just but they just believe in feelings and experiences right and they want an explanation and a way of of those natural phenomena so that's one thing however if for independent reasons you have certain spiritual convictions say you take mystical experiences seriously maybe you have a mystical experience maybe you Know in all cultures, people have these experiences when it where it, it seems to them that there is some kind of higher consciousness underlying all things or something. You know, if you're a materialist, you've got to think that's a delusion, right? Something funny's gone on with the brain. But if you're a panpsychist and you already think that the fundamental nature of reality is is made of consciousness, it's not too much of a leap to um to you know to think that what, what you're aware of in the mystical experience is an aspect of 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 the intrinsic nature of matter and if you take that just finally if you take that route it means that you don't have to think of what is known in the mystical experience as something supernatural outside of the physical universe you can think of it as just the intrinsic nature of the physical world so it, it gives you a way of seeing the spiritual story and the scientific story as two sides of the same coin and eddington also pursued that kind of line as well in his in his he had certain mystical views and so yeah so there is that aspect of it
0: In a way, it makes those kind of taxonomies redundant by virtue of its essential message so you say that the two problems that panpsychism helps us to deal with is one you don't have to deal with why did the miracle of matter suddenly becoming conscious on one particular tuesday and and it also helps us with the isness of physics when really we only study the behavior and relationships of material as opposed to their essential qualities. Uh, I sometimes wonder that the, if Philip, the reason that this avenue is not explored is precisely because it does reduce the, l- that leap into hang on a minute. Maybe that's why people have these weird experiences of thinking that they've lived before or hang on a minute. That's maybe what ghosts are. And and, and people are sort of scared of opening the door to all of this sort of stuff and i know that you know sort of scientists and serious academics don't like it when people start dabbling in the double slit hang on well that means it's conscious and it's wave particularing around on accordance with observation because consciousness itself is somehow interacting you know it's very easy to be reductive and to mold these things in partic- into particular philosophical uh, idols in order to serve particular beliefs but What I suppose fascinates me is the way that this theory helps us to better tackle the mysteries and indeed to recognise that a term like supernatural is, is a, a subjective one that we're just dealing with degrees of intelligence, consciousness and awareness that supersede the limitations of our sensory instruments and our capacity to understand knowledge and the belief that we are at some kind of summit of the ability to understand phenomena is the most delusional of all to think that, well we obviously understand everything there is to understand that's, that's, that's the, for me the most uh, troubling dogma
1: yeah, I mean, people, are, human beings always think they're at the end of history. You know, <laughs> everything's basically sorted. And I mean, going back to Galileo, people thought that with Aristotle, that they were at the end of history. And then, you know, Galileo came along and changed So, But, you know, people are naturally conservative and resistant to new ways of thinking about stuff. It's incredible. I mean, how much has changed with panpsychism? It's gone from being something that's laughed at insofar as it was thought about at all, to something that's taken as a very serious, maybe still a minority viewpoint, but, you know, taken very seriously in academic philosophy. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can understand people's, as you say, opening Pandora's box, you know, where do we draw the lines? But I think that there, there, are, there is good reason to think for the reasons I've said, that we can't give a conventional scientific approach to consciousness. So what do you do? You either pretend it doesn't exist, that's what people did for a lot of the 20th century, or you try and rethink how we approach science in order to deal with it. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to trust academic institutions, the peer review system that gives you a kind of constraint, especially with the internet and fake news and stuff. I think we need these institutions, uh, protect them from conflicts of interest. and, And, you know, this new kind of panpsychism has emerged within the rigorous peer review system of academic philosophy.
0: Occasionally I'll read something in The New Scientist, you know, they'll be writing about the nature of consciousness. And uh, we found some new mathematical model that demonstrates that the relationships between certain neurological centers and the increase in information might be what generated consciousness. And it always seems so complex and, and also laden with conjecture that, you know, they're operating in a sort of a cosmological field when dealing with with neurology. It's so vast, complex, like, and I know someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson would resist a term like unknowable, but it seems to me very difficult to, like, it doesn't seem, like when you said it can't be studied in the same way that we study matter and physical phenomena, like, it feels to me that the scientific community or aspects of it are unwilling to cede that territory. For reasons that I think are perhaps ideological as opposed to pragmatic.
1: Here's here's another way of putting how you could respond to uh, people with this attitude. Here's another way of putting why consciousness isn't just a standard scientific phenomenon. Consciousness is not publicly observable. You cannot look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness, not from observation experiments, but from our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. Now, you know, science is used to dealing with unobservables, you know, fundamental particles can't be directly observed, but there's an important difference. In all all other cases, we postulate unobservables in order to explain what we can observe. You know, Particles are part of the standard model of physics, standard model of particle physics that explains, you know, so much of observable phenomena. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable, and that is absolutely unique. And it really constrains how we can deal with it scientifically, experimentally. So, although you know, we can, we do deal, we do have a robust and well-developed, as you referred to, science of consciousness. Uh, how do we do that if it's unobservable? Well. Although you can't observe consciousness what you can do is you can ask people what they're feeling and experiencing and you can scan their brains and you can build up correlations you know you can discover that certain kinds of brain activity always go along with you know feeling pain or seeing red or something and we can get more systematic than that as well Uh, and that's really crucial data and that's you know really important that any theory of consciousness must respect but that is not in itself a theory of consciousness. Because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. Why is it that certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain types of experience? And because consciousness is unobservable, I don't think that's a question we can answer experimentally. So that's how I'd put why is it. So, So what do we do? We either pretend it doesn't exist, or we turn to philosophy. And we just look at the various options that have been proposed to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview. You know, there's materialism, there's dualism, panpsychism. Those theories are all consistent with the data of neuroscience. Some people think, you know, have this idea that neuroscience supports materialism. That's nonsense. You know, neuroscience just gives us correlations. And all of these theories have an account of that. Uh, And I just think the, the conventional options of materialism and dualism just have such deep problems. And panpsychism just elegantly avoids it all so i sometimes like the line from sherlock holmes where he says once you've what is it now once you've ruled out the impossible what remains no matter how improbable must be the truth so that's how i see it. it's not quite you you said a moment ago uh i liked you saying the isness of matter i might use that
0: i'm a peer now i'm influencing top level <laughs> philosophy i'll oh, oh. note that point we've used that in the that's in the trailer
1: i'll put you in a footnote
0: Swear i belong
1: it's not just saying you know oh there's a mystery here you know we'll never do it it's saying look you know i think the materialist approach to consciousness because of this qualitative quantitative stuff is just incoherent and the dualist position faces kind of more straightforward scientific problems panpsychism avoids all that so it's 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 the only theory that can account for all the data
0: It's also I sense a kind of determination to cling to the shores of this fast eroding terrain like that. No, no, we will be able to explain this using materialistic methods. Just give us a bit more time and with the same way that we got rid of typhoid, we'll get rid of this. And like, but I feel like um, that in a sense like that also you'll be pouring a cup of water into a vat of water when studying consciousness with consciousness the thing that you're trying to observe is the the very awareness itself that you're trying to observe it through you mentioned earlier mystical experience and i suppose much of my own interest is sort of based on mysticism and i suppose that's the could be regarded as the intersection between the unknown and the knowable, the kind of territory of the shaman, the ability to visit spaces and places that are difficult to ascertain without recourse to poetry, uh, imagery, symbolism, etc. I feel sometimes when there's kind of yogic experiences that I have where I actually feel the heat and warmth that would be, you know, would have a material connotation. Just yesterday, I did a sort of a breath exercise that, you know, from the from the most um, rudimentary and basic anatomical perspective, you would say induced hyperventilation. But from the mystical perspective, you might say, "Wow, my head heated up. I felt my sense of my individualized self. I experienced it as a construct, but based on memory and." repetition of certain kind of primal emotional experience. Oh, I'm the kind of person that likes this. I've done this a lot of times. I must be like this. I felt that sort of space closed down. And what is remarkable is that there is still territory. There are still spaces. You know, I still when the the sort of, you know, I couldn't in these brief, brief moments tell you my own name or anything or la- language doesn't even exist there. But there is still Phenomena. There is something happening in there, and this is obviously a lot more pronounced when people are are using psychedelics. They're gaining access to internal experience that I I feel like is latent, present, universal, and uh, 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 waiting to be uh, accessed. I think too that much of comparative mythology is is sort of hung upon the thread that this panpsychic theory presents us with the idea that there are psychological motifs and mythic motifs that continue that are continually presented because they are an expression of a common you know collective consciousness or collective unconsciousness because if there if consciousness is a fundamental component of our reality as opposed to an evolved one a, a particular a very particular type of consciousness human consciousness is likely somewhat, you know, like a topical, localised field that would have the same phenomena and have the same traits, characteristics.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, as as I say, you know, I think the current present time will be looked back on as as a period, a kind of very strange period where we just focused on one specific uh, way... approach to to the universe and anything that didn't fit into that is sort of is sort of ruled out i mean and you can understand it has been so successful and it's and and it's nice to feel oh we know we know where the answers are now you know that leads people talk about religion as a crutch but i think a certain kind of scientism can be a crutch also that you know we don't have all the answers yet but we we know where to look for them and uh anyone who's not doing this is sort of stuck in the past and you know we're the people who know the answers but you know I, i just think there's a different way of looking at the success of physical science that it's, it's gone so well because it was focused on, on a quite narrow specific task. And there's lots of things that don't fit, don't fit into that. I mean, consciousness is the obvious one, but also, you know, facts about value, facts about right and wrong facts about, I mean, mathematical facts, facts about numbers, the kind of timeless objects studied by mathematics have no, no place in, in the spatio temporal physical universe. And they're known about through mathematical intuition rather than, um, our our five senses, five plus senses. But, and you know, we've developed a sense where we think that's kind of weird and intangible and spooky. But I think that's because, you know, we're just focusing on the deliverances of physical science uh, as the complete story of the universe. So look, I mean, if you, so I guess we now think, you know, the job of science is to account for the data of public observation experiment, right? And you should only believe in things if they can be demonstrated on that basis. If you religiously follow that, you wouldn't believe in consciousness because consciousness is not known about in that way. It's known about through our immediate awareness of our feelings. So the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who's a a good friend of mine, very polar opposite part of the debate. But, you know, what I admire about him, he's wonderfully consistent about this. He, th- he said, you know, you can't observe consciousness in the third-person way, so it doesn't exist. Uh, I've got an, a good friend, Keith Frankish, who, who takes a similar approach. And, um, you know, so so I think, but so that's a that's a quite radical approach. But I think a more commonplace approach is a little bit confused. People think, uh, yeah, we don't want to deny the reality of consciousness, but we can just fit it into the standard scientific story. But I think there's something wrong there, because this is, this is something we know about in a quite different way from other scientific phenomena. So I think we really need to, as I say, rethink what science is. Uh, I think you know, we've come through a phase of history. Consciousness used to be taboo. And now, since the, since the kind of 90s, it, it's taken seriously as a scientific problem. But still, I think people just think, oh, just do more neuroscience and it'll be sorted. I think what we need now to and more people are coming to is a grip on the philosophical underpinnings of the problem. And what we need to do is see consciousness as a datum in its own right over and above the data of observation experiment. And that the task of science is to account both for the data of observation experiment, but also for the reality of consciousness because that's something we know is real. So it, it, we have to fit it into our theory of reality. And if your theory of reality can't account for that, then it it can't be true or at least it can't be complete so yeah so it's a revolution in how we think about science i think
0: and if it's if it's going to be inhibited or inhibitive to explore it as you say through existing scientific disciplines such as neurology what then philip does that suggest what new strata and fields are we to explore it through you've alluded to and and you are a philosopher so presumably philosophy and also i wonder where do you feel like the rubber meets the road when it comes to an idea such as this and the way that we organize distribute and challenge power
1: very interesting um yeah so just to emphasize i'm not saying that's that we can't approach consciousness through neuroscience and all that we need to do that any differently. I'm not here to tell neuroscientists how to do their job. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I collaborate with neuroscientists, try to stay as up to date as possible. And, but as I say, it, my point is it's not the full story because it just gives us correlations and what we need is explanation. So yes, we need to think of both. I think we need to think of the science, the science of consciousness as having an experimental aspect and a theoretical aspect. At the moment, that theoretical aspect is philosophy, because you have philosophy when you we're not sure what the rules of the game are. But, you know, I hope at some point it will be so solidified that it will be an, a new science and it, you know, then won't be philosophy. Um, but so, I mean, we, we're already kind of used to this in physics to an extent, you know, you have your experimental physicist, your uh, theoretical physicists, but for some reason with consciousness, a lot of people think it's just the experimental stuff. So I think we need to You know we need to take the data of neuroscience but that just leaves all the options open really you know the data of neuroscience is compatible with physicalism dualism panpsychism whatever but you then need a a theoretical consciousness scientist or philosopher to try and work out a theory that explains those correlations in the simplest way possible so i think there's a couple of constraints guiding this Uh, One, I think we need to fit the the data of neuroscience. That's one constraint, and that's what, we haven't talked about this, but that's where I think dualism gets into trouble. Many ways of running dualism look inconsistent with the the data of neuroscience. So that's the problem with dualism. Um, But we also need another constraint, I think, is we need to avoid explanatory gaps. That's parts in a theory where we go from here to here without any intelligible explanation of how that happens. We have a little miracle. And I think basically that that's the big problem in materialism is there's this huge gap between the quantitative uh, phenomena of neuroscience and the qualitative subjective reality of consciousness, and no one's ever had even the slightest account of how to bridge that gap. So I think we need to, a theory that matches those two constraints. No explanatory gaps, fits the scientific data. Um, and you know I think panpsychism is a... Is a is a broad framework for developing such a theory. I'm not sure we, we yet have such a theory. I'm working on a, a theory at the moment myself, but I think that looks to be the most positive way forward. And, you know, what's so exciting is that we're now seeing scientists and philosophers coming together to lay the foundations for this new approach to consciousness. And, you know, I, I think it's exciting times and it's exciting that what, what's developing.
0: It's interesting that, um, and we'll have to return to how it relates to the distribution of of power. But I was thinking then that if you accept consciousness as inherent within the fundament of reality, it begins to challenge animalistic yet physically observable. uh, No, accepted. Phenomena such as bloody space and time that if consciousness awareness itself is ever present then these kind of categories of like linear time or progressive time or space as we understand it begin to be challenged if awareness is this uh, so, if awareness consciousness is omnipresent ever present then then space and time as uh like you know say time is something that you know like be- it becomes more easily understood as uh, entropy rather than all oh, right, we're moving through time now because I, 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 aren't a lot of our ideas about time based on eg like motion on a sort of like from a sort of a physical perspective, but also our own awareness of birth and death and our own awareness of seasons and astronomical movement that but all of these things if they're taking place within consciousness as an ever-present overriding n- not sort of never beginning never ending component like the the value that, that it doesn't it's transcendent is what i'm saying it means that that it means that even the most sort of certain aspects of the way that we understand reality start to look local they start to look like local customs and habits rather than true universal rules. And for me, that possibly is something that is being uh, sort of intuitively revealed by our the subparticular study. Like, oh, hold on a minute, this isn't. And even like, you know, the theory of relativity. These are, we're not dealing with absolutes. I wonder how the introduction of consciousness into uh, as an in an elemental way affects those assumptions.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and, um, you know, I think we, re- we really need to think into the details of modern physics, how these things fit together. Actually, I mean, I've been talking about particles, but many physicists actually prefer to think in terms of fields, seem to fit better with kind of quantum field theory, so that the fundamental properties are these universe-wide fields, and then particles are kind of understood as sort of local excitations within those fields. So if you if you join that kind of if you have a panpsychist version of of that kind of field based option, what you get is actually what's what's called cosmopsychism. So that the, the 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 fundamental forms of consciousness are the intrinsic nature of these fields, and then the fundamental mind is. The thing that has those universe-wide fields namely the the universe itself so i mean this might sound like it's getting kind of spiritual again but you needn't take it that way you know you needn't think um this is god or something you needn't think that the universe is intelligent or an agent you, you, I mean, you might just think that you know intelligence and agency is what you get with millions of years of natural selection it could just be that you know the consciousness of the universe is just a kind of mess but uh but that's one natural way of spelling out the panpsychist hypothesis. So what's so beautiful about this view is you, you just take physics as it is. You don't change anything. and But physics just gives us this structure, this kind of abstract causal structure. and doesn't really tell us what's underlying that structure. Mm-hmm. And what the panpsychist says is what fills out and underlies and realizes that structure is consciousness. Um, and so, I mean, so you asked about the relationship to time. It's an interesting critique of panpsychism in Scientific American, by the uh, philosopher Susan Schneider, who was saying, exploring these theories in physics actually where space and time are not fundamental, uh, th- that they sort of emerge at a higher level. And she was saying, well, this is difficult for the panpsychists because consciousness is always in time. It always takes place over time. But I mean, that's not so obvious to me. Certainly our consciousness takes place over time, but it's not obvious to me that there couldn't be sort of timeless forms of consciousness. In fact, in many mystical experiences they seem to reveal some kind of timeless form of consciousness, so um, you know, so it could be that at the you know, at the fundamental level, that there is uh some kind of timeless experience and that human experience emerges at a higher level, but um, but yeah, I, I think that this is there's a lot of areas, this is really an interdisciplinary labor if you think about darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection that's not a complete that wasn't a complete theory it was a framework and it took a century to get to dna so what panpsychism offers us is a a framework and it will take decades or centuries of interdisciplinary labor to sort of fill in those details um but you know so that's what i want to you know we need to we need to get going
0: We've got to Wednesday. Yeah, why? Why would something so complex conform to one c- construct, one discipline? It's uh, ridiculous to think that it might. It seems sometimes to me that mysticism might be a a a kind of personally experienced spike where. Access is granted to information that is by its very nature difficult to convey when you re- resume uh, access to the limited bandwidth for, that we're uh, afforded here communicatively. You know, like w- when you said there about timelessness, I do you you've got any interest in psychedelic drugs, Philip?
1: I, I took psychedelic drugs when I was a teenager and had some intense experiences. Um, I haven't for a while now, and I got young kids, so it's a bit difficult to take a weekend away and do some ayahuasca. And but yeah, I mean, I'm I I I'm, I love uh, the the classic on mystical experiences. William James, and he experimented with certain hallucinogens himself. And um, yeah, like I'm. So I mean, some people think, oh, well, this has to be just a delusion or something, but you know my my philosophical perspective is all knowledge begins with trusting experiences whether that's your sensory experiences or you know how do we we could be in the matrix it could be that our how do you know it's the old philosophical question how do you know you can trust your senses we just have to trust our senses and then you know you have to make so many faith commitments to get science off the ground. You have to trust your senses. You have to uh, trust that the future will resemble the past. This is the problem of induction that there's no solution to. You have to, make, you have to just make some trust, some faith commitments to get things off the ground. So, and this is what William James points out towards the end of his chapter in, on mysticism in the varieties of religious experience. You know, if people say you know, it's irrational to trust mystical experiences, but it's rational to trust sensory experiences. He wants to say that's a kind of double standard. You know, this is both just trusting experiences. Um, so, so you know, so I think it's we just have to pick our foundations, pick our starting point. So I've, you know, I've, ne- I've never had a mystical experience myself. But uh, um, yeah, I guess I am inclined to believe there is a a moral certainly a moral and a spiritual aspect to reality um that is in some sense i i think as real and as concrete as what we know about the world scientifically so i mean that's more a little more con- obviously more controversial than just the reality of consciousness but i guess i would want to fit that into a worldview somehow
0: because it is difficult to derive values from a materialistic f- foundation uh, like I mean, moral values. Um, also, thinking about what you just said, then about mystical experiences, what was that? I sort of fell into. A, I sometimes literally fall into a tunnel inside my own mind, Philip. And it's it's so lovely here. It must be sort of very. Fa- it must be fascinating for you to be a person that studies consciousness, and you are a conscious person so yeah. it's very interesting it must be a cont- you must be continually up against uh, your you know, you you are your own experience of you i was thinking when you said that thing about mystical experiences that they in a sense there is nothing but mystical experiences on the basis of like we've said the inability to to ever truly breach subjectivity and the the, the sort of the privacy of that and also returning to this idea of power, I sometimes think it's not a coincidence that, or, or, or random or arbitrary that these parameters are appearing uh, as to what areas can be explored, i.e. The, to your point about William James, oh, it's okay to trust sensory experience, but it's not okay to trust mystical experience. We it, it, and, and a kind of a determination to keep consciousness in the field, say, of neurology. I think that there... I suspect and sense and feel that... The reason for that is that if we maintain materialism, if we believe only in empiricism, I suppose belief in empiricism is somewhat a contradictory idea, but like if that is that how we formulate our values, then I I feel that we see where that leads us. It leads us to individualism. It leads us to capitalism. It it leads us to, you know, quite literally to materialism. And yet on closer examination, we recognise that faith is a component, that there are unaddressed assumptions and that that to reform our society, to reimagine our society, uh, for me, if a component of that is the idea that consciousness is an ever-present and abiding phenomena i look you know i don't want to go into dream catcher and crystal land it's but but i do feel that it's a sort of a very unifying idea there's something sort of rather beautiful and unifying and a way of explaining the mystery and for me all the mystery is and all that mysticism is is we are Briefly interfacing information which we can't yet explain. Like again, um, I did you see that um Neil deGrasse Tyson on like the Cosmos? I I I like Neil deGrasse Tyson a lot and I respect him a great deal. I watched this thing where he talked about that dude called Bruno something or another who first sort of came up with some stuff I think prior to Galileo about you know like the the way that the Earth travels and the sun and that and the first person, as I understand at least, to say there are probably multiple solar systems and galaxies limit the stars etc and like he you know was burned as a heretic or whatever but in the documentary neil degrasse tyson explains like oh and he just you know he didn't have any scientific evidence he didn't observe this in fact the telescope weren't invented for a few more years yet he just guessed it or he just dreamed it or made it up and i was like hold on a second this man accessed this realm of cosmic truth and that we've dismissed the idea that that, that there are other means. Who are these Rishis, these Sufis, these mystics and saints that seem to be able to access data and information that chimes with emerging theories on the nature of reality? I'm not saying it's right to institutionalize them or to start assuming that these this group of people are better than this group of people and that particular version of truth is better, but it does at least seem to suggest that there are ways of acquiring data that are not via the senses and enhanced sensory instruments.
1: Yeah, I mean, another another aspect of of uh, empirical, normal empirical science that I, I mentioned which related to that is, is that simplicity is a constraint, simplicity and elegance. So, you know, actually for any empirical data, there's always, in principle, an infinite amount of theor- theories, or hypotheses compatible with it. How do we choose between them on the, on the basis of simplicity? But, you know, why the hell are simpler theories... More likely to be true. What? That's that's not you know that's a kind of weird uh, starting point of science. And you, you know usually it's kind of obvious what what the um, what the simplest theory is. But I mean sometimes mere simplicity has been a, a crucial decision point. So with special relativity, Einstein's theory of special relativity was empirically equivalent to the Lorentzian theory that preceded it. It's just that. Einstein gave a much simpler and more elegant interpretation of the data, you know, and Lorentz had all these ad hoc uh, constraints. So, you know, so 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 there, that that is another aspect where we're not just people have this sometimes have this oversimplistic conception of science, like it's just reading the data and 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 mm. you know putting the results. But sometimes it involves you know leaps of the imagination, radical reconceptualizations of our of our understanding of the universe. And you know, coming back to your, the point about power and um, societal implications, and so there's a, there's a strain of feminist thought. Naomi Klein's talked about this that this moment in the scientific revolution, where we separate out quantitative physical world and qualitative consciousnesses, you know, leads to the idea that the, the natural world is a mechanism, and mm. leads to the idea that we can do what the hell we want with it. Yeah. Uh, you know moving on from a sort of maybe pagan idea of you know mother earth as something that needs respect and even fear uh so i think I, i'm kind of think you know i talk about this in the final chapter of my book that the first four chapters are the sort of philosophical scientific case and then the final chapter is just discussing the implications for human existence and i do think you know it could potentially lead to a better relationship with the environment if so if you think a tree is just a mechanism then basically you think its value is to do with indirect, you know, what it can do for us, either by looking pretty or sustaining our existence. But if you think a tree is a conscious organism, albeit of a, of a very alien kind, then it, you know, it's a, it's a locus of moral value in its own right. Chopping down a tree is an act of you know, moral significance. So, you know, these terrible forest fires we've seen in Brazil, you know, we're all horrified by them. But if, if you see that as the burning of conscious organisms, it adds a whole moral dimension. So I kind of speculate about a child raised in a panpsychist view, seeing a forest as, you know, a buzzing, blooming community, I think can give you a very different connection to nature. Although I've been trying to persuade my three-year-old saying, do you think trees have feelings? And she say, no, they're just outside. They don't think about anything. So...
0: Yeah, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and they're conservative, selfish
1: little bastards. Yeah, property property is so hardwired into toddlers. Property,
0: ego, I'll kill you. Yeah, like um, that thing that you just said about, um, you know, the the sort of preference for simplicity in the establishment of uh, hypotheses and theories, that's an interesting and fundamental bias that's kind of about aesthetics more than anything else and the other challenge that I feel that conventional science faces is uh, uh, on the um, assumption of objectivity is the way that it is funded, the kind of questions that are asked, the kind of questions that are not asked and to your uh, later point about like if if kids grew up thinking that they are inherently connected to trees that themselves are conscious organisms a, a priori then it's not so easy to breed generation after generation, uh, which you point out is sort of a, almost a, uh, an anomalous historical blip, to raise people just to consume stuff and not think about anything else. You're an individual. The tree is just a mechanism. Chop that down. Use it. If it's not useful to you, it's not valuable. That, that's, for me, not an accidental worldview, but a deliberate one that feeds into a particular and fundamental philosophy that is our abiding one That for utility economics. If it can't be used, it's not a value.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think t- touching on connecting to this, the fear of of you, people worry if we're going to take these approaches, we're going to lose all constraint. You know, you're going to lose the way of you're going to get to the woo and the mystery. And, but, you know, as I say, I think we need, we've got academic institutions. We've got peer review system to, to weed that out and to bring rigor. And it's more important than ever I think, to avoid conflicts of interest. I was just speaking at a philosophy festival and also speaking there was Mark Littlewood from the Institute of Economic Affairs, who, you know, a, a, an organization who don't declare their funders. And so, you know, don't give us the right to listen to what they're saying uh, and in, in, in the knowledge of who's paying the piper, you know, so I don't, and they're on the BBC all the time as sort of impartial wow. voices. I, I think you should not have the right to you know, call yourself a think tank unless you are completely transparent as your donors. You shouldn't have the right to appear on the BBC as, you know, so, so I think, it's, I, I think the, the answer to this worry about, about losing any kind of constraint is, you know, institutions where we get out conflicts of interest, we have transparency, um, and, you know, I, I think that's an important part of it.
0: I agree. I think it's a kind of conservatism as opposed to some sort of a like preservation of some uh, pure ideal. That that when you have funded organisations presenting information as unbiased truth, that's uh, problematic. Again, it's, it's like that is ideological. It's d- deeply ideological, uh, mate. It's uh, been brilliant talking to you, Philip. There's loads more things I'd like to know about i mean we in one hour haven't completely proven the theory of panpsychism nor entirely <laughs> denied dualism and materialism can, but i feel that significant progress can i has share been made. one more
1: bit of information with you we oh, used God, to yeah. work together Ka- callan school where of english how?
0: that makes sense i, I mean was, how else could where else could it have happened <laughs>
1: what an intred- incredible time i where, was uh, where were you i was a shy 19 year old um in the holidays while I was studying, worked at Callum School. Of and so I just remember, I remember someone called Russell, who I, th- I think I was a bit intimidated by a bit older, slightly older than me, a bit intimidated, you know, just because I was kind of shy. And I think you were a bit of an extrovert. And then I went back there, um, after I finished my PhD, and I was a few months looking for an academic job. And then people were talking about Russell Brand work there. And I just suddenly realized, oh, that Russell, is that Russell?
0: That's extraordinary. That was a very interesting time in my life. I was still drinking and using drugs then, like literally while there in the lavatory while teaching English as a foreign language it was really really chaotic but in a sort of way wonderful so sometimes when i'd get left alone in a classroom with like a bunch of like young people from brazil and poland and japan and stuff and like i would just like the door would close and i've got to teach them english now i think this is mental <laughs> i could just say what i like i'm not going to read this book <laughs> like, yeah. it was a ridiculous mental time um yeah that, that's <laughs> wonderful that our paths crossed there
1: excellent well it's been great talking to you thanks thanks for having me on
0: stay in touch philip it's a really beautiful theory and you explain it wonderfully and uh, compassionately and in, in a way that's very easy for uh people that haven't had the uh, education that you have had to understand so that's great teaching thank you thank you very much i hope you enjoyed that episode of dr philip goff uh, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram and Twitter and all those things because we use that content and we? we read out the comments. Just send us a nice comment. I tend to prefer flattering ones. <laughs> Sign up to my mailing list, uh, com, to gain exclusive content and all that sort of stuff. We'll be back next week. In the meanwhile, why don't you listen to Sharon Salzberg? I've been doing her meditation lately. Her meditation, for example, on Insight Timer. Very good meditation for self-compassion, for compassion for others. And David Eagleman, brilliant man, who I've actually got to write a quote for his book. Why won't I do these little chores? Um, Have a listen to him. Good stuff. Look at the old YouTube channel. And I love you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. That's the new way I've got to say it. Luminary. Luminary.